There's a saying, I'm not sure how famous it is, but you probably are familiar with it. It says this, anyone can be a father, but it takes a real man to be a great dad. The point is this, anyone can, as God commanded and as we have read here in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. In that sense, any man and woman whose bodies are functioning normally can do this. They can procreate, you can be fruitful and multiply. It is, however, a decision and a life choice to be a great dad or a great mom to your children. In the same way, in that same way, it's not whether or not you can procreate that is the issue. The real issue is what are you going to do in terms of serving God or not? And what will happen of your fruit and the multiplication that you bring into the world? Will they serve God or not? That is what this little section is dealing with that we're dealing with here. And why? Because God just destroyed the earth with water. And Noah and his family came out of the ark and there are eight souls living on the earth. And so as we talked about two weeks ago, the, the, the command, the mandate that God gave man is once again reiterated that this need and this desire of God for man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that there would be imagers of God that would fill the entire earth and not just people that are human beings made in the image, made to be the image, but people that are the imagers of God that serve God, that love God, that are loving God with all their hearts, minds, soul, and strength. And so this is what this section of scripture is about. And there's this overarching theme of this filling, refilling of the earth. But within it, within this overarching theme, there are these points just kind of packed away. Just scriptures like that, where there's kind of a theme, but then there's this, these, you know, kind of bonus little, you know, messages that are just packed in all the way through. And, you know, we can see and we can look at it tonight and we can say and agree with the Apostle Paul as he told Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, right? And so as we come to the passage tonight, we can say that tonight all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us. So what is it about tonight in chapter 9 of Genesis? Well, Noah was fruitful, Right? God had said, be fruitful and multiply. Well, Noah had fruit. He had seed. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons. And so I kind of feel kind of like, you know, there's like a kinship, you know, with Noah, you know, because I have three sons and uh, Noah had three sons. And so I'm kind of in that club, you know, with Noah. And uh, so, you know, this is a good thing, I guess. But Noah had three sons, and they each had wives. And from these people, this group, all the, all the people of the earth have come forth from this, from this people. And you and I are sitting here tonight because of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we can trace our lineage back to one of those sons and ultimately back through to Noah. And so tonight, you are the seed of Noah. The question is, are you the seed of Christ? Are you the seed of God? 
And are you one that serves God in the world? Are you one that serves God moment to moment, day by day, in each and every situation, viewing your life as someone who serves God in the world and looking to make that type of choice and decision concerning everything that you do? So tonight, we're going to talk, be talking about serving God, how we can do it, where those moments fit into our lives in terms of serving God. And so we're going to look at it tonight, this text, and we're going to see more of how we can serve God in our lives. And so if you're taking notes, I've got a few points, I think four tonight. And the first one is this, you serve God first in your family. You serve God first in your family. Let's look at the text. It is... Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 18, it says this. Now, the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. The first and primary location of our lives is that we are situated in a family. Amen? You were born into a family. This is the God-made community and foundation of all society, the family, the family unit. We are born into a family. Some were born into big families. Some were born into small families. Some were born into dysfunctional families. Some were born into not as dysfunctional as some of the other families. We were all born into kind of a crazy family. So it's okay. Noah had a family. Just like you were born into a family, Noah had a family with his wife and his three sons. And can I say it this way? Noah's sons had a great dad. Noah's sons had a great dad. He wasn't perfect, but he served God in his life. Amen? He served God in his life, and he served God in his family. Remember, and I will recall it for you from our study, he heard the voice of God that told him, that warned him that he was going to bring destruction by water upon the earth. He heard the voice of God and the command of God as God commanded him to build the ark and gave him the specific instructions. He heard the voice of God as God called him onto the ark, him with his family and all of those animals that he called to be on there. And he heard the voice of God to disembark from the ark. Remember, we talked about that, disembarking from the ark. And um, I think it was me that coined that term. No, um, anyways. Um, and so he's a man of faith. He's a man of God. He's a man who hears the voice of the Lord, and he's a man who obeys it. And furthermore, on top of all that that we just recalled, you will remember that when he disembarked from the ark, what was the first thing that he did? He sacrificed to the Lord. He took some of the clean animals and he sacrificed, he worshiped God. And can you imagine that particular moment for me just for a second here as there he is coming off of the ark and he's making the altar and he's, he's worshiping God, he's thanking God for bringing him through this time of testing and trial and, and the winds and the waves and the fountains of the great deep and all of it, it was a, it was a tremendous time that they were on the ark, and he worships God. 
And there, who is witnessing? His wife, his sons, and their wives. And it is a great witness to them of his service to the Lord, of his decision to serve the Lord, to hear the Lord, to hear the word of the Lord, to obey the Lord, to worship the Lord, to say, hey, you know what? We're God people. You know, this is the type of people we are. We're worshipers of God. And it was a witness to them. He, he was a man of God. Noah was a man of God. And his faith is an example to us all. If you read in the book of Hebrews, in, in the 11th chapter, it's a, a chapter called the Hall of Faith. This is what some of the commentators have called it. It's a, not a hall of fame, it's a hall of faith. And, and Noah, of course, is entered into the hall of faith. His faith becomes a witness to us of great salvation faith, of a faith of a man who says, I'm a worshiper of God. And so for his faith, it, he is recorded and makes his way into the hall of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11. And so he's a great witness in that sense. Now, the greatest witness for our lives the greatest witness is not Noah, not Abraham, not any of those guys that are in the hall of faith. The greatest witness for our lives as people who serve and love the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ. Well, how's that? Well, because the writer of Hebrews actually goes on to say that in the next chapter. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What's that? Yeah, he's the author of it. And he's the finisher. He's the one that showed us how to do it all the way through from start to finish. He's the perfect witness for us. But we have these other witnesses. Um, Jesus told us to uh, wait. Well, let me back up. Jesus is the, the perfect witness for us of how to live for God. Amen. And Jesus, if you'll remember, he told his disciples right before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. He told the disciples, he said, okay, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. You're just a, you're just a hair ahead of me. You're just a hair ahead of me, but you're doing great. <laughs> um, and so Jesus was telling his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And what is recorded in Acts chapter 1-8, and there we go, Acts 1-8, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Charles, what are you saying? I'm saying that Noah was a witness. Of a, of a, he was a man of faith. He made it into the hall of faith. He's a witness to us. In, in, in the first part of Hebrews 12, when you go from Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith, you go to the next chapter, the writer talks about this cloud of witnesses that were surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And they're like, where are they? Where are they? You know, the, where's the cloud? Where are the witnesses? No, the, the cloud of witnesses is all of those that are mentioned in the hall of faith. They sit in a, in a cloud figuratively. Because their faith and their life and their belief in the word of God is a witness to us and needs to be a witness to us of how we are to live our lives as servants of God and worshiping God. So Jesus told the disciples, he said, 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. Now I want to focus on this word witness for a second because Noah is a witness to us. Jesus is the perfect witness of how to live for God. And then Jesus is saying, we're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon us and then we're to be witnesses. So this is the type of life that we're to have. We're to have the same life that Noah had. We're to follow the same example that Jesus laid down for us. And this is how Jesus told us to do it, by receiving the power and then therefore being witnesses to him. Now I want to focus on this word witness just for a second. In the original language, which is Greek here in the New Testament, in Acts, the word witnesses there is the word, it's actually the word martis. And it's actually where we get our word for martyr. And if I were, ha- if I were to have polled the audience uh, before, the, uh, before the, 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 the message tonight, and I said, what, what's a martyr? And define a martyr. And most people would probably have defined it as a person who has died for a belief or a cause that they believe in. A person who has died for a belief or a cause that they believe in. And let me say it to you this way. And I, I don't, I'm not saying, well, ding, 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 you're wrong. Okay. But the word is, it actually means a living person. It's a, it's a person who's living in such a way that they are a martise. And if that means that that takes them to their death because of their faith, that's what they have become. But they were a martyr before they ever faced death. They were a person who were, was a witness to, 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 to testifying of who Jesus is, of the resurrection of Christ, and of the transforming power of, of his spirit in their lives. And because of that, they have become, as a living person, a martis, a witness. And, and this is what we are called to be as Christians. We're called to be martis, mar- witnesses. Witnesses of the reality of Jesus, who he is, and that he has ris- risen from the dead. And so the question is, as we're serving God, and we serve God first and foremost in our family, and we go back to our text in, in Genesis, and we look at Noah, and we see that he is this, he's this witness to his family, right? And, and, and he's this witness of, of, of a person who serves God. And so I think the question comes to us, are we being a witness in our family? Are we being a witness in our family? And this is so important of a point. I wish everybody were here tonight to hear this, and hopefully this will make it onto the podcast and onto the app and all that good stuff. But here's the point. The point is that we need to be people who are serving God in our family, in front of our spouse, in front of our kids, because it's so important. Because everybody in our family is watching our lives. And we're in it. Let's face it, folks. It's, it's behind closed doors. We're, we're back there behind the veil of the door. Your kids know who you are. You might put on a front. You might say, well, we're you know, out in the streets and out in the business world and out in whatever. I'm this and that and whatever and whatever. Your kids know who you are behind closed doors. They know if you have an authentic faith. They know if you're a person of God. They know if you're a person of, of God's word. And that's why it's so important. And, you know, we used to, 
years ago, we used to take a bunch of kid, teenagers to this, to this uh, youth convention. It was called Acquire the Fire. Anybody remember that? Yeah, Acquire the Fire. These, these were great youth conventions, youth conferences. And it was like we wanted the youth to acquire the fire. But then Ron Luce, who founded the conference, he realized that, you know, we could have these great youth weekends where the youth, like, acquire the fire and then go back to their homes where, you know, it may be like church on Sunday, but, like, during the week it ain't church. Behind the closed doors of the home it ain't church, and, and, and it should be. Amen? Because we're the, we're the smallest representation of, uh, you know, of, uh, of that family unit. We're the smallest representation of the church. And so what he realized, he says, I've got to write another book, Inspire the Fire. And he wrote a book to the parents to say, hey, we've got to inspire the fire. We want our teens to acquire the fire. We've got to inspire the fire and therefore be those people that are modeling, witnessing of the power of Christ, the resurrection and that we, our lives, are truly being transformed. And so are we serving God in this way, in the primary location and institution that he has placed us in, none other than the family that he has placed us in? And, you know, this is for all people. You say, well, we don't have any kids, or all the kids are gone, or whatever. Well, you and your wife are still a family. Last time I checked, that was still, you know, Right? nuclear family. And, um, and so the same holds true. Noah was a witness of the reality of the Lord and of his word. And I think we can follow, we do well to follow the example of Noah, amen, and his witness. Secondly, you serve God in your profession. Let's pick it up, verse 20 it says this, and Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and become, became uncovered in his tent. We need to learn how to be, to serve God in our profession, in what it is that he's called us to do. Now, what we know of Noah's life if you, read the Gen if you read Genesis and even the other parts of Scripture where Noah is mentioned, if you put piece together everything that we know about Noah from the Scripture, what we know about Noah is that he first found favor in the eyes of God. He, 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 was, he found favor in the eyes of God. He was blessed of God. And that he was called and commanded of God to build this ark that would save his eight family members and the animals from being destroyed from the face of the earth. And we know that he built the ark for 120 years. But, you know, he lived, and we'll find out tonight, he lived for 950 years. So if you look at the portion that, the, okay, you think of building the ark for 120 years. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't do anything for 120 years. He built the ark for 120 years. And wouldn't you know it that that's kind of a small portion of his life? <laughs> really, I mean, the, the, the greater portion of his life was not centered around building the ark. I mean, if you do the math, 950 minus 120, that leaves another 830 years where he wasn't building the ark and doing other stuff. Amen? And so here, <laughs> here we have this, uh, this passage that we're looking at tonight where, you know, after the ark, after he comes out, and it says that Noah began to be a farmer. He began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. 
a lot of the commentators on this passage are, you know, there's a few that are in agreement on this point, and they suggest that, that perhaps Noah was a farmer beforehand, and before he was called to build the ark, and then God called him to build the ark, and then he's kind of going back to being, being a farmer, or as some translations call it, a husbandman, right? We don't talk like that anymore. We don't, oh, look at that husbandman, right? You know, but I'm reading some of these older commentaries, and the, you know, this is the language that I have to read and you know, get through and understand you know, this idea of a husbandman. But you know, a person of the tiller of the earth, in that sense, a, a farmer. So you know, whether that's true or not, that's of no consequence. Here we have the text that says that he began to be a farmer, and, and he worked the earth. Now God has called us, just as there was presented to Noah something to put into his hands to do, God has called us and put something into our hands to do. We have, in that sense, perhaps a profession, for sure a calling. I know, no, I know a lot of people, we, we don't, you don't hear about this stuff anymore. I wrote a blog post a few years ago about the fact that you don't hear about, people don't talk in terms of calling anymore. They just talk in terms of, well, I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this. But let me tell you, I grew up in an environment where you talked about your, what your calling was, and that you were called to something, and that God spoke to you, and he impressed upon your heart and said to you, in a still small voice, this is what I want you to do with your life. And, 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 and I don't think it's a good idea that we've, in any ways that we've gotten away from that, because, because there is a calling that... Each person has, that God has a plan for our lives and, and there's, a, there's a calling and a purpose that, he's, uh, that he has put upon our lives and that we're to serve God in our calling. And it doesn't matter what that calling is. It could be ministry. It could be business. It could be teaching. It could be whatever it is that God's called you to do of all the myriad of things, you know, there's guys that are good builders and carpenters. There's ladies that are great designers. And, you know, I mean, I look at like, um, I know I keep coming back to it, but, you know, it's great. I, you know, you look at Flip, um, not Flip or Flop, um, what, what was the other one? Fixer Upper with the gains, Chip and Joanna, you know. You look at these two. He's a great builder. She's a great designer. Look at what they do together. And they serve the Lord in it. And, and, and so whatever it is for you, Whatever it is that God's called you to, we're to serve God in that, and we're to see the, the day-to-day aspects of doing that as serving God. That, that's part of our service to God, so that, so that if you are called to, to that, or, or God's put that in your hand to do, then you need to view what you do in terms of work, you need to view it as, as an avenue, as that opportunity that you have every day as a way to serve the Lord. As a way to serve God. Amen? Amen? Paul put it like this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. He says, bond servants obey. Now, bond servants there, if, if this was a modern translation, you could put workers or employees even. Employees, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Next verse. 
And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for, look at it, for you serve the Lord Christ. And this is what Paul's saying, that in your work and in your calling and in that, in that place, in that thing that God has put in your hand to do, that you serve the Lord Christ. That you serve the Lord Christ and do it as unto the Lord. Not with eye service pleasing men. But do it, but in sincerity of heart fearing God, he says. Amen? Wow. We're called to, to serve God in our work. The work of our hands. I remember when I, I had this job. And I don't even know the, the timeline on this, but it was back when I was in college and I was in college in Lakeland and I had gone home to Virginia for a little bit with my parents and I got this temp job. And they called me up and they said, we've got this temp job for you. And it was like digging ditches for like an irrigation company. And I, I think, literally, I think I lasted like two days. I was like... <laughs> Don't call me tomorrow <laughs> type of thing, you know. But you know what? If, 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 you're, if you can't serve the Lord with sincerity of heart and what you're doing, hey, find something else to do. Find something else to do because you will find that you will be so much more successful in your life when you find that place where you can serve him with sincerity of heart, with sincerity is under the Lord. And just loving what you're doing and, and just being a part of, of what you're doing. And so it's important that you do that. I, I, I can't emphasize it enough. I really can't. I mean, I'm, I'm just loving, loving what I'm doing, you know? I just feel like God's, you know, in the last few years, I would have never thought I would have my own business, moved over here to Melbourne. I didn't have a job. I left a good church that was supporting our family. And I, we said, bye, here, God's called us. You know, and I came over here and God's given me, uh, you know, put, you know, showed me how to do this, this business and everything. And, it, and, it, and it's grown and whatever. And, and, and then the church, everywhere I go, I get to just, you know, do these great things that I love to do. And, 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 and be with you people whom I love. Amen. And so it's an awesome thing. So find that. Find that place where you can just love what you're doing, serving the Lord and as, as unto him. Now remember that we're made in the image of God. And you are ruling and reigning as his imager in that location. And so the question is, how well are you doing? How well are you doing at that? You, if you are indeed in that place that God has placed you in, you need to rightly image him there. Represent him there. Rule yourself and that which has been put under your stewardship well. As Paul has exhorted us here in Colossians. You see a lot of people that don't feel like they have an important job. You say, well, I don't have, a, I, I don't have an important job. Nothing could be further from the truth. What has God given you to do? Then do it for him. 
Look at it. Look at what you're doing as serving him and doing it for him. And that changes everything about what you're doing. Amen? Now, this will really change your perspective. Amen? Chris talked about it earlier, changing your perspective, getting God's perspective on things. And that's what happens when we come into the the presence of the Lord and we hear his word. Amen? Let me just add one more thing. You say, well, I just, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, it just doesn't seem to really be, you know, that important. Jesus said this. When you've done something unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. You've done it unto me. So I don't care if you're making ice cream cones down here at Dell's Freeze. You do it as unto the Lord, and you do it unto the least of these, and you have done it unto him. Amen? Amen. Serving the Lord. Now, one of the things that Noah did was when he became a farmer. The text says he became a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Now, Chris and David just went out into California, into Napa Valley, And so I thought, Noah planted a vineyard. I get to show a picture that they took from Napa. Amen? Yeah, so here it is. So Noah planted a vineyard. Now, this is not Noah's vineyard. This is another man's vineyard. And, but Noah had a vineyard, and he had, he had a vintage. He had a, it was Noah's vintage, <laughs> right? Back in the uh, late 80s and 90s, and they still make these today, but I don't know too many people that wear them. But back then, people were, like I used to even wear these, like these Christian T-shirts that were kind of, <laughs> and this is kind of funny, but they would, they would they, some of the Christian T-shirts, they would make it to look like, like a name brand, you know, something. You know, like, you know, back in the day, they had like, you know, the one, it was Coca-Cola logo, but it said Jesus is the real thing or something like that. And I remember I had the one back in the late 80s. Remember when Reeboks were really popular? I don't know what happened to Reebok, but back in the 80s, they were king because everywhere you go, everybody had a pair of Reeboks, right? And I had a shirt that said Reborn, right? And it was the Reebok logo, right? And, and then there was some other ones. But anyways, I had another one that I thought was cool, and I don't know why. I just, I bought it. I wore it. <laughs> and it was, it was a picture of this, like a vineyard. And it was like, you know, the grapes and the vineyard and everything. And it said Elohim Vineyards, <laughs> you know. And it had some scripture verse and everything. So anyways, God's into vineyards. Amen. You, did you know that Jesus... You know, Noah went, Noah spent 120 years. Here's some similarities with Noah and Jesus. And I know I can't outdo Michael Heiser, who connected the birth of Jesus, the birthday of Jesus to the birthday of Noah. Wasn't that incredible? But I'm gonna, let me connect some dots here. Noah and Jesus. Noah built the ark for 120 years. So what's that? That's like, carp, that's like being a carpenter. Well, Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years, or at least for like, 18 years from the time he was 12 to the time he was 30. And so he went from being a carpenter. Noah went from a carpenter and builder to a farmer and a vineyard keeper, right? And Jesus actually did the same thing. 
He went from being a builder and a carpenter to planting a vineyard, right? You say, well, when did Jesus plant a vineyard? You're it, folks. You are the vineyard that Jesus planted. You are the vintage and the fruit of the labor of what God did through Christ when he came and he put down the hammer and the square and he picked up the, the, the ministry that God had given him when, when John baptized him and he was, the Holy Spirit came and the Father spoke and he entered into the ministry and he began to, to plow the ground of men's hearts with the, with the word of repentance and the, and the advancement of the kingdom of God upon the earth. And then when he celebrated the Passover with his disciples, he told them, he says, he says I'm, a, I'm a part of the vineyard too because I'm the vine and you're the branches. Verse 5, John 15, 5, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And so that's what God wants us to do. Now, Noah drank from the fruit of his labor, and our text says he got drunk. He, he planted a vineyard. He became a farmer. He planted a vineyard. And one day, he was drinking from the fruit of the vine, and he had too much, right? And the Bible says he got drunk. Now, just a word of this, and I'm not going to belabor this point because it's not the point of the message. There's no outright prohibition against drinking in the Scriptures, and we see that, that there is drinking in the scriptures, and we see that there's, you know, wine, and they had, you know, Jesus, his first miracle, he turned water into wine, and, and it was the best wine that there was. I mean, even the, 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 the captain of the wedding said, hey, who brought this stuff out? And it was like, yeah, Jesus, that's Jesus vintage. <laughs> you have Noah's vintage and Jesus vintage. But there is the warning against the overuse, right? The, uh, the indulgence, the... Um, the the uh, the warnings of its excess, right? And so, and we we are specifically told not to be drunk. Probably the most famous of these commands is is the one in Ephesians five five eighteen, where the apostle Paul says, "And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit." And so, we're not to be drunk with wine. We're not to put ourselves in a situation where we're under the control of a drug, or 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 you know an alcohol or drug for the purpose of escape or pleasure. We need to be in control. And Paul takes it a step further. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, be filled with the Spirit. Be under the control of God. Be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Instead of having your glass filled up, topped off at the bar by the bartender, be filled and be continually filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? And if you will do this, if you will do this, you will see incredible things happen in your life, transformation in your life, the work of the Holy Spirit, everything that God wants to do, bringing yourself under the control of the Holy Spirit and beginning to see the fruit of the Spirit that he wants to bring about in your life. Now, so you serve God in your work in your profession and your calling. Now, thirdly tonight, you serve God in how you respond to situations. Verse 22. Now, we'll have to hurry because I took too, too long with those first two points, as usual. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, 
saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. But Shem, Ham, and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went back backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So we serve God in how we respond in situations. Okay, so we're, we'll find ourselves in various situations. Some are like easy, like, hey, this is like, you know, I can, I can figure this out, how to serve God here. Others, you have to really kind of focus and say, okay, how does God, how, God, how do you want me to respond in this situation? Shem and Japheth found themselves in a situation where they had to kind of determine exactly how they were going to respond because their brother Ham did something here. And let me just say this before we dive into the depths of this, okay? This is, this, this is a passage of scripture that was very confusing, you know, when you're first learning the scriptures and you're coming to this particular passage. And you come to this particular passage in Genesis and you read this and you say, okay, and, and Ham saw the, the nakedness of his father and he did this thing. And then the next thing you know, his son Canaan, and, and we're already reminded, I don't know if you caught it so far in all the verses, we've already saw, saw twice before we even got to what Ham did, we already saw twice that Ham was the father of Canaan. It's the Holy Spirit through Moses writing the book of Genesis is telegraphing and telling us, here's, here's the message here. Ham is the father of Canaan. Da -da 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 -da. Again, Ham is the father of Canaan. And oh, by the way, here's what he did. Okay? So that's the preface. It's very confusing, this passage. And here's why. Because there's at least three ideas of what happened here. Three things that, at least that I've come across in studies. One is the one that probably everyone grew up with, okay? Noah planted a vineyard, he had some wine, got drunk, he was in his tent, he was naked, whatever, and Ham comes in there and goes, oh, dad's naked and whatever, and oh, maybe he took advantage of the situation and maybe taunted or whatever he did, but it was kind of this, he came in on his father his father's nakedness, okay? So that's one particular view. Problem with that view is that it doesn't connect the dots as to why then suddenly, and we're being telegraphed in the passage, Ham's the father of Canaan. Ham's the father of Canaan. Here's what Ham did. And oh, by the way, Canaan's cursed. That idea of what happened doesn't connect any dots as to why suddenly Canaan is cursed for something that appears to be, or we're being told, that was a simple thing, not simple, but something that Ham did. Okay. The second idea was that there was some type of sexual activity that was going on, and, and, this, and, and this is number two and number three. I'll just mention two briefly because I think you can, we can put it to rest after we get into the third option. The second option is that Ham somehow took advantage of his father's nakedness in, a, in some type of a homosexual incident, okay? And so then there would... But see, that still does not connect the dots as to why we're being telegraphed through the passage, Ham is the father of Canaan, Ham is the father of Canaan. Oh, by the way, here's what Ham did, and here's the curse and the prophecy of the curse upon Canaan. We come to the third option, and it is this. And, it, and it, what, how we have to understand this 
is really is understanding a use of an idiom here in Genesis 9. What is an idiom? An idiom is an expression. And I'll give you this example. If I said to you, abortion is a hot potato. Abortion is a hot potato. You will not figure out what I meant by that if you didn't know the expression, the idiom. You will not figure out what I meant by that by learning what the word hot means and learning what the word potato means. You, you have to, to understand the sentence, you have to understand the expression hot potato because hot potato actually has a meaning that is separate from the word hot and separate from the word potato because it's really not physically hot and it's really not a potato, but it can be a hot potato, okay? So are you following me so far? That's just a little brief and English teachers or whatever could do a better job explaining that. So what we've actually got here in our passage is a Hebrew idiom. And we're going to actually see that the, the Hebrew idiom was so strong that it actually finds its way into the law. And we see it very clearly. And it's going to actually, when you see this, if you've never seen this before in your life, you know, the bells are going to go off and you're going to go, oh my goodness, this makes so much sense. Okay, here we go. So when we're told that Ham saw the nakedness of his father, let's look, let's look back at it in verse 22. And Ham, there it is again, the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So when we're told that Ham saw the nakedness of his father, this saw the nakedness of some, some, someone, is an idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom, and I'm going to show you very clearly in Scripture what this means. The best verse to show you what this means is found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 20. In the, in the book of Leviticus, in chapters 18 and 20 and so, a couple other places, you find some codes, some laws that are written as far as sexual purity is concerned. And in this, in this chapter, Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 17, it says this, if a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing. And they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. And here it is. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. Okay, here's what I want you to see here. There's, two, there's actually two idioms. And the idioms are actually connected to be equated to one another right here in this verse. Okay? So if someone sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, this is an idiom for, and I have to get a, just a tad graphic here, but the removal of clothing for the act of intercourse. Okay? This is what this is talking about. Her seeing her nakedness and she seeing his nakedness. You get the picture, what's happening here? This is what's being said. It's a wicked thing. And, and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. So not only do we see that the seeing of each other's nakedness, that the idiom, seeing someone's nakedness, is an idiom for uncovering 
the genitalia for the purpose of sexual intercourse, but that seeing of nakedness is also connected to another idiom, which is uncovering someone's nakedness, okay? So are you, are you guys following me so far? If so, just everyone nod and say, yes, we got it, Charles, move along. <laughs> Here the idioms of seeing someone's nakedness and uncovering someone's nakedness are used interchangeably. They are the same thing, but there's more to see here for understanding what happened in Leviticus 18. Going back two chapters, Leviticus 18, six through eight, verse six says this, and here's the command, and this is part of the law. This is the law of God. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. Okay, so here's the idiom. Next verse, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your, your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. So look at the verse. You, the nakedness of your father, the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. What? She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Verse 8. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. And here's the, here's, here's the, here's the dots connected here. It's your father's nakedness. What's that? The nakedness of your father's wife is your father's nakedness. Okay? So when Ham comes into the tent and he uncovers his father's nakedness, the nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. So here's what's being said. The nakedness of a man is his wife's nakedness. To uncover a man's nakedness means to have sex with the woman who belongs to him. That's what this means. That's what this, and it, it, it's, it's, I can't, it can't be any more crystal clear for me reading the scripture. It's as clear as a, it's as clear as a you know, bell being rung on a, you know, in Philadelphia. Um, so here's what's happening. So what we, ha what we see here in Genesis 9 was not simply Ham seeing his father drunk lying in the tent naked or some homosexual situation. Ham went into their tent, Noah and his wife probably having some, something to drink, Noah having too much, perhaps his wife having too much. We're not told about that. And Ham took advantage of the situation. And what did he do? He uncovered his father's nakedness. And what did we learn that that is? Uncovering his father's nakedness is uncovering the nakedness of his of his of his of Noah's wife, which is Noah's nakedness. So when Genesis is telling us Ham uncovered the nakedness of his father, so what happened? He goes out and he tells his two brothers about this. So Shem and Japheth. What do they do? Now, they're, they're put in the situation of, okay, what, how do we handle this situation? And here's what we can learn from Shem and Jabe in this. Because, whew, let me just, let's just take a deep breath, because this is kind of heavy, you know? I mean, what we're talking about is we're talking about um, a grievous sexual sin, and we're talking about um, um, incest with your mother, there's some speculation that, oh, I won't get into that. Okay, let's move on. Um, 
So Shem, Shem and Japheth, how do they handle it? They go backwards into the tent, right? They drape the thing on their shoulders. They go backwards, and they, they cover their dad's nakedness. Okay. And this is very commendable, what they did. Everything about it. It distances them from what Ham did, and it shows their disapproval of what Ham did. Wow, we can really learn a lot from what Shem and Japheth did here. This is the way we respond to situations in our lives and in the way things should be done that distinguish us as people that serve the Lord. We respond differently. There are many different ways that you might respond to this situation. There are many ways, and you could probably say, well, you know, I might even temporarily agree with like a half a dozen of them or whatever. Look at the way that Shem and Japheth dealt with this. They, 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 they went backwards and, and they covered their father's nakedness. They distanced themselves from Ham's action and not showing approval of it. Meanwhile, covering over, covering up the situation. And here I'm going to connect the dots for you on this. Love does not approve of iniquity or sin. We're told this in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 6. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. But also, love does something else. It covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So you can look at the, the, really, the beauty of the way Shem and, and Japheth really handled this that they were really just a commendable job in how they handled it. Covering up the, the sin at the same time, not rejoicing in it or approving of it. And, and let this be kind of a, a, just a picture for us of, of, of how we might handle situations that arise the question about this whole situation is, why did Ham do this? And to order to understand exactly why he did it, and I'm, I, I got I to gotta, I gotta finish this off, and then we might come back next week and finish it up, but this is just too, too much, right? Um, here's why Ham did it. You have to understand the ancient Near East culture. What Ham was trying to do was to raise up competitive seed through his father's wife with the intent of taking control of the family and passing it on to his family. You say, what? How do you know that? You study, you can find this multiple times in scripture where people took control by taking the wives and the concubines of the one that they were conquering, whether it be a king, whether it be a king that they were replacing. You can find this all the way up and down the stories with Saul and David and his sons, their attempts to do this to him. It's all throughout the entire Old Testament. It's an ancient Near East thing, whereas to, to an attempt to raise up competitive seed to take control of the family. And so this was Ham attempting to do that. 
attempting to, to raise up competitive seed through his father's wife with the intent of taking control of the family. And that's why the product of the act was cursed. Canaan was cursed and not allowed to assume the control of the family. And we will see this play out in the rest of Scripture. This actually uncovers and unlocks, uncovers, unlocks really the, the understanding of this passage and shows you how this connects to the entire rest of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and even up to right now, this very moment. What's happening? It's, it's amazing. The son of Ham, Canaan, was the father of the Canaanite clans. This competitive seed became the very families that were the ones that came up against the people of God and were the thorns in the flesh to the people of God all the way through the Old Testament. The Canaanites and all the Canaanite clans, and you can go down through all the ites, right? You know your Old Testament. They, this is what happened. And what God said through Noah when he, when, he, when he brought this curse upon Canaan, and it's believed to be, it reads like, oh, it just happened. It was that night and Noah just blurted out with this curse. No, it's believed to be that this all came about probably as Noah was getting up in his age. It's likened to another passage in Genesis, Genesis 49, where Jacob is dying and prophesies over each of the 12 sons. And that's an incredible presentation of, 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 of prophecy. But what you have here is you have Canaanite, Canaan, the father of the Canaanite clans. And we'll see in the next chapter as we go through the table of nations and the 70 nations that are on the face of the earth through these three, three boys, these three men, we'll see in the next chapter that Shem is the father of Eber. And Eber is really a, a bear. And it is actually where we get the idea of the Hebrews. And so you have through Shem, the father of Eber, the father of the Hebrews. And so you have the Hebrew people, and then you have Canaan, and you have the Canaanites. And this really begins to make sense of your Bible for you, so that you can now look at this in a completely different way. So you have Shem, the father of Eber, the Hebrews, and this flows right into our last point. You serve God in your destiny, and I will literally do this in two minutes. Verse 24. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, and he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, and the God of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant, and Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And so we serve God, lastly, in our destiny. Because of what Ham did, Canaan was cursed. Canaan and his seed would not be allowed to gain control of the family. That was not the destiny of the family. What, what Ham did on that night, what Ham attempted to do, that was not the de destiny of the family. In fact, God, God has a plan, and he, has, he had... He had a purpose that he was going to bring forth upon the earth, and it was not going to be taken and usurped away from control of what he was doing in this family. And so Shem gives birth to Eber, or 
father's Eber, <laughs> I should say, through his, through his wife, right? Let's give her the credit. <laughs> give credit where credit's due, amen, to all the moms out there. And so Shem has, so Canaan is cursed, and there's this prophecy of this curse upon Canaan, but then there's also another two parts of the prophecy where Shem is blessed. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. Now, Shem, I don't have time to get into this. Man, this is so long, and I I know you guys got to go. I'm just going to tell you what you need to hear here. Shem, this is what commentators have connected the dots here, that Shem, the house of Shem, was that that became the priesthood of Yahweh. In fact, in extra-biblical texts, Shem is actually has some connection to Melchizedek, the priest and king of Salem there, and we'll get to that in Genesis 14. But you see, this is the worship of Yahweh, the priesthood of Yahweh, the, the sacrifice, the serving of God came through and was appointed unto Shem, and it's connected to this prophecy. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. And Canaan be a servant. And verse 27, and may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So Canaan is going to be the servant of, she- of uh, Japheth and Shem. Now Shem is the father of Hebrew, Eber, who became the father of the Hebrews, who becomes the father down the line of Abraham. Okay? So you see that. Japheth is the father of those that become really the Europeans. The, the, um, the Gentiles, the, um, the Grecians, the Romans, and those of the isles, and this is a biblical term, those of the isles, is actually becomes another idiom, actually, of those of the Gentiles and, and really those of Japheth. Okay, so whenever you read that in prophecy, and you'll come across that in prophecy. In, in the great Isaiah, Jeremiah, those of the isles and those of the... That's talking of, of the Gentiles and those of Japheth. And more than likely, most of us here, except for maybe a couple, couple of us, can trace our lineage back to Shem, but most of us can probably trace our lineage back through Japheth and through the Europeans and either the Grecians, the Romans, or the Saxons, or the whatever, right? And... And so Japheth would then come to dwell in the tents of Shem. So I'll wrap it up here, since I'm probably looking at a bunch of Japheth people here. <laughs> you didn't know you were Japheth people, but you were Japheth people. Unless, unless is any, any Shem, any Shem here tonight? You're like, what? And we'll talk after the service. Okay. <laughs> Japheth. Why are you here, Japheth? You're here because you came to dwell in the house of Shem. And this is what Paul talks about when, when the Gentiles are grafted in to the Jewish line. That we come as the people of the Isles. And I like that title, right? I want to be a person of the Isles. <laughs> people of the Isles. And we come to dwell in the house of Shem. Amen. This is our destiny. This is our destiny if we choose to serve the Lord, to serve God in our lives. And you can choose a destiny in God if you'll choose to serve. Choose you this day whom you will serve.